Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my Authentic Wellness Podcast. I want to start moving towards much more focused topics within the large scope that is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. The other day, I was sitting at work, pondering on the idea that I am simply a construction of experiences I absorbed. I act this way because it is the way I live, with mannerisms, behaviors, and many things that make me me, because of what shaped my childhood. I may or may not have been impacted by the medicinal properties of cannabis when I was in this state of overthinking, but it caused me to see my past as a longtime factory that resulted in the product, which is myself. In that moment, I became very present with myself, to the point of attention, to such intricate detail. I stared down at my hands and I noticed I was picking at one of my nails. It had started to bleed. Something I do so often, it comes very easy as breathing to me. I am not aware I do it. I have always picked at my nails, my skin. I know I am having bad days when I pull out my hair. But these are things I do. They don't make me feel bad. To me, they feel safe. It's a sense of normalcy I have given myself. But I do realize it is not normal. People don't pick at their skin till it bleeds and feel comforted by it. But why was I doing that in that moment? I asked myself that question as I tried to make my hands fidget with the pencil and went back to overthinking when not even three minutes had gone by and I was once again held in a state of biting the nails that were previously bleeding. After four years in college, majoring in the social sciences, anyone would identify this as a coping mechanism or bad habit. I love how quickly people are to label behavior with negative connotation without diving deeper into the root of the behaviors. Humans are so one-sided in that. What they observe on the surface level is what is to be correct in their eyes. But I'm not the one to throw shade. I'm guilty of it too. However, when we come across the word coping mechanism, we get a sense that this is not a good word. Coping mechanism as defined by the Collins Dictionary is stated to be an adaptation from environmental stress, unconscious or conscious, which brings physiological comfort. I find two things very interesting from this definition. The way they said adaptation, long-term survival. The way they said physiological comfort, why not just physical, emotional, or any other state? It begs the question, is the mind powerful enough to step in to comfort us when we simply give up? Is our brain our second source of giving life back to ourselves to meet us when we are in a state of survival? That's a lot of pressure on the brain if you ask me, given what we already know about how the brain works for us. As we previously learned, when the body is under stress, we reduce or tolerate that stress by changing our behaviors in order to see another day. When the stress is too much for us to perceive and absorb, an article found in the National Library of Medicine by Algarani further break down coping mechanisms into two kinds. We have our reactive and proactive coping. Reactive coping is the mechanism we adopt from reacting to the stressor, while proactive is a reaction we adopt in an attempt to further prevent future occurrences of that stressor. Oh, but we're not done here. Coping can further be reduced into four more categories. Where does yours fit in? We have the problem focus category, which addresses the problem causing the distress. Examples of this style include active coping, planning, restraint coping, and suppression of competing activities. The second one is called emotion focused, which aims to reduce the negative emotion associated with the problem. Examples of this include positive reframing, acceptance, turning to religion or humor, the third being meaning focused, in which an individual uses cognitive strategies to derive and manage the meaning of the situation. And then fourth, we have social coping, support seeking, in other terms in which an individual reduces stress by seeking emotion, emotional or instrumental support from their community. Given the vast complexity of coping mechanisms, all humans learn to cope based on survival. It's normal to act in order to make the environment and the situation more comfortable. When we implement a coping mechanism, we are giving ourselves power and control over a stressor and taking steps to avoid what is wrong in the moment. When we look at coping mechanisms and trauma, many adults of childhood trauma find that they continue to cope exactly how they used to when they were children, living through day-to-day -day trauma. It's as if coping mechanisms are something people cannot outgrow because they are stuck responding to stress as if they were living in the past. 
This is nothing to be ashamed of. People do everything in their nature to reduce negative stimuli. However, the valuable component in healing is learning to reshape coping mechanisms, especially negative coping mechanisms into something beneficial for the adult mind and soul. So ask your inner child, if you could drop it when you no longer needed it, would you? We no longer need to be implementing these negative coping mechanisms as adults. So why can we not stop? Why can we not let these go? Releasing them along with our other baggage? Why is it so hard? Here's where I would like to begin the discussion on specific ways to cope, particularly for people that carry all this trauma with them every single day. As adults, triggers can send us spiraling if we struggle with emotional regulation. When people are placed in stressful situations, they revert to mannerisms and strategies that they know have worked in the past to return them to a more normal state. However, too much of something cannot be so good when we have long-term effects or consequences. Let's look at some obvious coping mechanisms. Substance abuse. This one is huge. Who doesn't know someone that reverts to drinking when they are stressed? That insists substances are the only solution to a stressful event and the only way to feel any sense of peace. We have isolation and the avoidance of other people. I struggle with this myself, thinking that distancing myself during a stressful situation will prevent me from showing anyone emotional extremes or hurting anyone. In the same way, this creates consequential feelings of isolation, which can hurt in the long term. It's a contradiction because we run away and make it difficult to be seen, and yet we hope someone comes running after us. We have the hypervigilance that we often so see in war veterans and individuals who have trauma of being attacked or abused. It's very understandable to become someone who always feels the need to be on guard, but of course this can spiral into paranoia. We have the one where people avoid any reminder of trauma. By this, they can overwork themselves, always feeling the need to stay distracted. They take up more than they can handle, thus harming other areas in their life, such as the maintenance of their physical and mental health. People may make attempts to shut off all feelings, to become so numb, they lose insight on themselves and live in a false sense of reality. They don't recognize themselves. But with trauma, we see one of the more dominant emotions being anger. Anger is the body's way of expressing grief for the inner child. People with trauma do not realize how much anger they have and are capable of expressing. Coping with stress can show itself through heightened reactivity in adulthood, being set off, acting violent towards oneself or other people, and committing dangerous behaviors. Of course, there are many, many more coping mechanisms that people undertake, but these are just the main ones. And it all originates in childhood. Children are the greatest absorbers of their environment, so they take in much of the stressors present in the environment they grow up in. Here's the part where we talk about how damaging repeated trauma can be for children and adolescents because the repeated consistency of the event will cause repeating emotional signals that are either too much or too distressing for the person. So in the minds of the abused or traumatized, their thinking process is how can I escape this negative emotion, the state of distress? I need this feeling to stop because it is way too much. What can I do? We aren't thinking about long-term consequences when we start to use our mechanisms. There's a part of the brain that shuts off due to trauma. So from then on, if a child finds something that works, like biting their nails, dissociating, acting out, to make themselves heard, avoiding sleep because you feel unsafe, anything to make what is out of my control from becoming worse, the child goes, I will do that. And I will revert to the strategy every time I feel like this again. Like it makes sense, but there's so much harm that is done with the repetition of these mechanisms because it can lead the adult self to spiral out of control and revert to these mechanisms when faced with stress that may easily be resolved or also when faced with healthy forms of stress because to a traumatized individual, all types of pain are dealt with similarly. It does not depend on the severity anymore. There is no second thought given and that's why it becomes so hard to deal with these toxic and harmful coping mechanisms as adults because habits have been formed. It's like they're part of us now 
And how unimaginably painful would it be to break one of the only things that we know that keeps us safe and makes us feel somewhat normal again? People with trauma take on many coping mechanisms. It's not only just one for me. Found that I have three main ones. I have been self-mutilating my body for as long as I can remember. I was around seven years old when I consciously became aware that every time I would get in trouble and become so angry and overwhelmed, I would take my nails and scratch my legs and arms as hard as I could. I quickly made that connection that this physical pain, despite that it did hurt, was way more preferable than the emotional pain and the stress that I was feeling in the moment. It would calm me down. It would help me stop crying. And in an instant, my focus would be put on the fact that I was in physical pain and take all the attention away from the emotional dysregulation and the inability to calm down. Suddenly, I had an ability to calm down. The lump in my throat from the anger almost disintegrated when I would hurt myself this way. And so, every time I would become worked up like that, which was all the time, I would revert to scratching my arms and legs to calm down. My mother would describe me as very angry, and she thought I was possessed by a demon. More on religious trauma later. But she always said I had an intense anger, one much too big for a child my age to have. As I got older, around eight, the fingernails became pencils broken in half. I would find this pain more satisfactory, that it did the job quick. Point two pencils cut in half for when I needed to relieve some tension when life got unfair. From pencils, it became sharp objects. Anything I could find, really. I was experimenting with sharp objects around the house, like wires, nails. There was this one ruler I used a lot. In seventh grade, I mainly used jewelry and sharp wires. In middle school, I started to use pens and scissors, anything I could get my hands on. And all these objects eventually turned into blades in high school. And then they turned into knives in college. I've always struggled with self-harm for as long as I can remember. I knew I did it. I never told anyone I did it. I would cut in two places specifically, on my left thigh and on my left arm. And sometimes on my ankles. I was ashamed of myself for doing this, but I didn't know any other way to calm the intense emotion that I felt. I was a very emotional person, but I had to hide it my whole life. And this was my way of doing so. I would always describe it as a release of pain when all the blood trickles down the arm or leg. That was the instant release of pain. It was dripping away. It was coming out of me. Whoever had hurt me that day, whatever situation I was in, this was the only way to stop that from escalating, to stop me from acting out in ways that would get me in so much trouble. When I would cut myself, it felt like a warm hug. I felt like someone was there for me and that I had support in the moment. I felt like I was in control of it. It became an addiction for me because when I cut and when I had an episode, a very intense emotional one, I would almost feel euphoric after I hurt myself. I had not yet been able to put into words as to why I picked up on this coping mechanism. Other than that, I needed instant relief. Never once in my life do I remember somebody helping me calm down, someone helping me emotionally regulate. I don't know what that is. What I do remember is being punished for the way I reacted, for my emotion. Early on, I learned that if I expressed my anger, my sadness, if I cried too hard, or if I started hyperventilating, I would get hit. I quickly understood that this was something unacceptable, and I was not able to show my emotion, that I wasn't able to express that when I felt upset over something that was unfair to me. I was not able to show emotion when something felt wrong, or when I did not feel okay. My parents had grown up telling me that they were not able to show emotion as well, and that it was wrong to do that, that it would upset God, and that he would punish me for the way I acted. When I was nine years old, I came to my mother and told her I wanted to kill myself and that I needed to die based on the previous behavior for showing too much emotion, for being so angry and breaking things and hurting myself. I was ashamed of the emotion. I was ashamed of the emotion I showed because to me, I was a monster. I had felt that something was just too strong and too powerful, so I had to find a way to control it myself. And that's what I've always done. Up until this day, I know how to stop my anger from getting too bad. 
but knowing all that I know now, I recognize that this was so unhealthy for me to create an addiction for me, that I physically harmed my body and put so much strain on my body in an attempt to fix myself, and I just ended up breaking myself more. I can honestly admit that this was the habit hardest for me to break, and learning a new coping mechanism, something just didn't seem to compare to what it did to me, to what cutting did to me, the satisfaction that this brought, that it made me feel. But the ultimate realization came that what I was doing was wrong, was when I landed in the hospital and had to get 33 stitches on my leg because I did it too deep. They told me I was a millimeter away from my artery that could have killed me. My coping mechanism number two, dissociation and maladaptive daydreaming. I mentioned before, I have never felt present in myself. I've never felt like a person. I've always felt like I was looking in. And in a way, it's because I was never there. With all the pain that I felt growing up, consisting of feeling left out, consisting of never having what I wanted or what I needed, but not understanding that, either my mind would wander and I would have a very active imagination. In elementary school, my friends would describe me as being super random, as someone who's capable of thinking up of the most crazy ideas, imagining the craziest things. I loved to write stories, pretending I was in them, making myself the characters living out the scenarios. Since growing up, I felt so understimulated, so bored, always having to be stuck at home, always having to play alone, never having anyone to talk to, to go to. I would create my own little world. I would create a storyline with my toys and my dolls. I would pretend to be them, using my imagination to put myself in their world. I would get lost playing. Seven to eight hours a day, I would be sitting on the ground, living in their world instead of mine. Because theirs was happy. They got to do so many things. They had so many experiences. They had loving people in their lives. I always made sure to give my toys great storylines. My dolls would have families. My cars would have families. Everyone would love each other. And there was never any conflict. I remember my dolls having loving parents and their friends having loving parents. And I would be able to be one of them every afternoon. To me, this isn't abnormal. Children use their imagination to play and create storylines with their toys. But then I started to realize that I would not only do this during play, but I would do this every moment of my life, throughout my whole elementary school experience, middle and high school. I remember not being present at all. You see, the problems I was having at home were simply too much for me to think about. And of course I would think about them. I couldn't possibly sit in class and listen to a math lesson, when in the back of my head, the anxiety of me coming home to my mother dead was just too much for me. When I wasn't anxiously overthinking, I was in my own world. During class, I would leave my body, and I would be someone else in my mind. I would make up these intense scenarios that I was part of someone else's family, with parents who loved each other, with older siblings, and someone who had friends. This kind of daydreaming was so intense. When I came back to reality, I often felt that I had been mumbling words, the conversations that I was having with people in my head, in my world. Leaving my body was the only source of joy, in which my needs could be met, and where I was seen, understood, and given any form of attention. I would be so happy when I left my body, when I was in this world, this alternate universe, in a reality that I made and that I so heavily wanted. I would be so joyful in my world. Oftentimes when I would emerge back into my own reality, I would come back smiling. I not only did this during class, but I did this to fall asleep every single night. When I was bored at home, having nothing to do, I would sit in my room and dissociate. I would go into a world where I was not me, where I was not in my situation, but quite the opposite. As I grew older, I started to realize what I was doing, that I was doing this unconsciously when class lessons weren't interesting, 
when I was home alone or bored, when I would be riding the bus to school, during long lectures, and even while I read or watched movies, I would leave. I couldn't keep myself in the present because I didn't want to be. I would often lose concentration, focus. I was highly convinced I had ADHD. In the long run, PTSD and ADHD overlapped for me, but it's the difference of how intensely I would dissociate and how often that told me something was very wrong. Shortly after 2020, I really came to terms with my dissociation because it suddenly stopped. It wasn't completely gone. I would dissociate when I became upset or distressed. To this day, I still do it. I do it when it's all too much or when I experience something traumatic. My body does leave. But that's something that I noticed after 2020, that I was not going back into my happy world. As I began to heal, as my trauma resurfaced, I became more present with myself and essentially became a new person. My little world shortly vanished. I started to forget about it. Since I now have a support system in my real life, I no longer need to revert back to my old world because my needs are being met and everything I ever wanted was actually happening now. And that's why I came to realize that the reason I was dissociating was because I was a traumatized child, a lonely child. I was left alone for hours on end to tend to myself, to figure out what to do with myself. My life felt very uncomfortable. When I came of age, I looked back on my childhood as being miserable and just feeling stuck. If I could not express what I wanted to other people because it felt inappropriate, I would give it to myself in my head and I would be in my body and I would give it to myself that way. But you see, there's so many consequences that caused me to struggle academically, to be very academically behind. I never caught up because I was never safe because I was never safe during the time where I was receiving an education. There are so many gaps in my memory as well, of my life which I cannot remember because I simply was not there, mentally. I also struggle with being present when something is hard. My mind simply tells me to leave because it is too much. I have always left. I have a habit of running away when something is uncomfortable. It's the flight response that promotes avoidance. And that leads us into my third coping mechanism, which is intense repression and forced identity. I mentioned how my whole life I had to emotionally shut myself down. My emotions were inappropriate, my anger was too intense, my sadness was too prolonged. Everything would set me off so easily and I could not express it fully in my own home. My only method of coping was to repress everything, to push it back inside, and to release it with self-harming. But all that did was bring me momentary peace. So all the anger I felt, I just pushed it inside. All the worry and anxiety and distress that I felt about my life, in my situation, I just had to hide away. To me, my thought process was that if I just numb myself to the point that I don't feel anything, then I will be okay. I can always remember beating myself up so hard when I just couldn't hold my tears any longer, when my parents would fight and I would cry out of fear, and I would belittle myself and call myself a fucking idiot, a baby, a loser, and the weakest human being on the planet. I would punish myself for crying. I was training myself to be so emotionless that it would make me strong. A part of me always told me that the day where I don't feel anything when my life is falling apart is the day that I have conquered everything, that I would have reached maximum strength. I would do this every year, and then every once in a while I would blow up, and it would lead me into a cycle of self-harm and suicidal ideation. I would compose myself and keep going. My life is a construct of misfortune and events happening that just kept happening and would never stop. But I not only repressed my emotion, I repressed my whole life. After every traumatic event, every moment, I was hurt, repeatedly year after year. I just kept it to myself. Who else was there to tell? Who else was there to help me live each day? The only thing I was told was that other people have it way worse and that I should be grateful that mine is not as bad as it could be. I was always told to be grateful. I was always told that I was super ungrateful 
that I had everything any child could ever want. And what was a reason to be so sad? I was told that I was really spoiled growing up, that I was given so much, so why be upset all the time? Because of what happened to me at the time I was a child, I cannot process it. I cannot simply forget about it or let it go. It resides deep inside my unconscious, and I hoped it would never come knocking, but it did in March 2020. Everything that began happening to me during my mental health relapse and resurfacing of my trauma was a result of my repression. There's only so much that the body can handle, and I thought I was this all-powerful human being who could put so much pain into such a small body and small brain. It didn't even cross my mind that one day I would explode, and the consequences would be deadly. I was coping this way because there was no other way my brain was choosing to put things away. My brain was doing this, so I didn't have to process it in the moment because it was way too much for me to handle. Children don't have the developmental ability to process traumatic events. And when my memories began to resurface, I noticed that slight things triggered me, and I was taken back to a time that I thought I had forgotten, but could not pinpoint. You see, repressed memories can alter your reality in some way. It leaves gaps in your past when you try to recall something. There's so much confusion that comes about with repression. It's hard to know what was true and what was false and how events played out sequentially. Memories that are blocked for several years all of a sudden come about after being triggered and you don't know why. The box was too full and it simply couldn't bear much longer. This was my unprocessed trauma. It's the lack of options for me growing up because I never knew where to direct my pain. So I directed it towards myself, inside myself actually. And this coping mechanism created such intense consequences that left me feeling like I was going insane. I began to suffer and struggle with a lot of triggers, very insignificant things that sent me spiraling. One of them being sudden loud noises. They sent me into an intense panic. Another being rejection. That brings about the feeling of shame towards myself for acting in ways I couldn't control. Coping mechanisms is a heavy subject, simply because we all have them in some way. And it definitely does take a lot to heal and repair oneself from what you were once doing to survive. It takes time and work to realize that to help oneself, you have to recognize that you are no longer in survival mode. You no longer have to do these things to get through the day. We are now free, and we are now capable of making choices for ourselves and being able to escape situations that aren't safe and comfortable and wrong. I found therapy extremely helpful when it comes to overcoming and recognizing such coping mechanisms, which can be very harmful. When we are children, we were hiding within the unconscious psyche in an attempt to escape a horrible reality. We developed a new version of ourselves. We could be a false self or ego. I talk about never feeling present. It's because someone else took over me and their motives were based more on giving me control so that I would be able to make it through the next day. When people are often associating, daydreaming, feeling like an alternate version of themselves, Putting on a face or persona, nothing feels genuine from then on. I noticed that my past self left me at 19 because at 19 was when I began to realize how much I had not been there for myself. I had not created an identity of myself. I had no personality. There was nothing. I didn't have any likes or hobbies. There was nothing to me. I did this to survive as many people have done. They are not themselves. They do not know themselves because their life has not been there but a search for themselves that has been made impossible for them by the hurdles given to them for years on end. And that is where we grieve again for what was lost and what we didn't have, for who we didn't know. Every day I wake up and I'm like, man, it would have been so cool to know who I was as a child. It would have been so cool to have had an interest, to have had an actual personality I didn't make up to be able to think back on things I did based on my wants and desires and dreams that I had. It would have been so cool to have voiced myself as a child, to have been given approval for something, but I just felt so small and nothing ever came out of me. 
What I try to emphasize in every episode is that we are never hopeless. Even if we haven't found ourselves yet, one day we will and it will be so magical. I am grieving 18 years of my life, but I have finally found myself and I've given myself the life I love so dearly. I love who I am now and what I like. It's something I am so grateful for, to be able to be this way now. And it does take so much processing of the pain, so much time trying to pinpoint a trigger, to work on not letting it affect me anymore. I constantly repeat affirmations to myself. I have to tell myself these every day, that I will be okay, that I have been strong and I don't have to rely on myself for everything, that there is support out there and there is so much of it. In the unspeakable mind, it conveys how coping strategies teach us that if they go on for too long, it becomes a problem. It lulls the trauma survivor into a false sense of security that they eventually think that if I avoid this, if I avoid doing everything that upsets me, everything will be okay, but it won't. In the long run, it won't, and it's hard to realize that. But I want you to know that it's possible to separate yourself from your past when it comes to coping mechanisms. So much can be reversed and repaired, but it does take strength. In the next episode, I want to talk about disease and chronic illness. How do they result from ongoing traumatic experiences? And as always, I want to still help you and ensure you that the consequences of childhood trauma do not have to limit you. I'm confident the next episode will provide you with more reassurance rather than worry, as we are all such powerful people and we will conquer this together. But being informed is such a vital key component in healing, and I'm sure you will never regret it. So let's become authentically well and bring others into this community so that they may feel peace. And that is everything I had for this episode on coping mechanisms. I hope you guys have learned so much, and thank you guys for being so present in listening to the series, for listening to my story. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and share this podcast to anyone who you think might benefit from learning about complex trauma and living authentically well.